All right, while they receive the offering, let's get out our Bibles. Let's do this, friends. Uh, Acts 17 is where we're going to be this morning. Uh, Acts 17, if you didn't bring your Bible, you forgot it at home or in your car, that's okay. There's a blue one underneath the seat you are sitting in. Reach down there, fumble around, find that blue Bible. Um, And Acts 17 in the blue Bible is on page uh, 1026. 1026, Acts 17 is where we're going to be. If you don't own a Bible, like you don't have one at home, you didn't leave it in the car, um, you can take that blue Bible. That's, that's our gift to you. To you. You, can, you can take that with you. Um, mark it up, fill it in, whatever you want to do. That's our gift to you. Um, Acts 17, we're going to pick it up right where we left off last week in Acts 16. Uh, how many of you guys, show of hands, how many of you guys were here last Sunday? How many of you were here? Okay, many of you, most of you, sweet. Uh, last Sunday, Paul is on a journey, a missionary journey with his friends, right? Silas and Timothy, and then Luke joined them last week. Uh, where, where, where was he last week? What, where was the, what city was he in? Philippi, yes. He was in Philippi. And what region of the Roman Empire does Philippi sit in? Asia, Asia Minor, yeah, what's, what's the name of it? It starts with an M. Macedonia, there you go, nice, perfect. Paul has been called to Macedonia. He receives a, a vision in the, in the night of a man in Macedonia crying out for help. He goes to Macedonia, he begins to plant churches there. He plants a church in Philippi. Um, and then he moves on from Philippi. In the beginning of Acts 17, we're going to skip over this a little bit. He moves on from Philippi to a place called Thessalonica. He plants a church there. He's actually driven out of Thessalonica by the Jews. They become angry with him and they drive him out of town, which is fascinating when you you go back and you read uh, Thessalonians, the first and second Thessalonians, because Second Thessalonians 2a, Paul says, having become so affectionately desirous of you, we long to share not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well, our very lives. Like we liked you. Like we had fun together. We wanted to hang out with you. We didn't just want to preach to you. We wanted to do fun things together, right? And, and the first time he shows up there, he's driven out of town by the Jews, which is, which is amazing. Um, but we don't have time to get into that this morning. He goes from Thessalonica to Berea, and the Jews from Thessalonica find him in Berea, and they drive him out of Berea. And so he sneaks out of Berea in the middle of the night. Silas and Timothy stay in Berea, and just seeking to try, and they're working to plant a church there. So they're working tirelessly to plant churches in all these towns and all these cities in Macedonia. So Paul leaves Berea in the middle of the night, and he goes to a place called Athens. You guys heard of Athens? Yeah, it's, it, is, it is one of the most influential cities of all time. Athens. Uh, in, in, in the Greek empire, um, when the Greeks ruled the known world, Athens was kind of the hub. It was the center of the empire. Um, it was the center of thought and ideas that have shaped the world, have shaped your life, whether you realize it or not. Um, the ancient uh, thinkers of Athens have shaped the way that we live today. Uh, well over 2,000 years ago, coming up almost 3,000 years ago, the thinkers of Athens have shaped the way that we live our lives today. Uh, you know these men by name. There are many of them, but kind of some of the most famous ones. And, and honestly, these aren't even um, not quite even the most influential ones. But some big influential ones are, are guys like uh, Socrates and Aristotle, and Plato. These are all men that came out of Athens. These just unbelievably brilliant philosophers who shaped and formed the way the world exists today. Modern societies and modern cultures have been built on their ideas. 
It's unbelievable. And so when Paul shows up in this place, now remember, Paul shows up um, actually several hundred years later um, to this city that is now under Roman rule, Roman Empire, um, several hundred years past kind of what, what historians call the golden age of Athens when those guys like Socrates and Plato were around. Paul shows up several hundred years later, but the city is still an unbelievably influential city. It is a hub of culture. It's a hub of ideas. It's a hub of philosophy and science and mathematics. Um, it's, a, it's a hub of astrology, right? There's so, much, there's so much intellectual stuff happening in Athens. It's really an amazing place, and it's a beautiful place. Uh, unbelievable buildings and, and sculptures everywhere. But Paul is not impressed. In fact, the first thing that we see from Paul is a level of disgust with what he sees. Here's what I want you to see this morning. The first kind of big weighty thing that I want you to see is this. That in in the midst uh, of this righteous anger, God uses a loving pursuit to produce a fruitful invitation. God uses a loving pursuit in the midst of righteous anger to produce a fruitful invitation. Okay? God is going to use a loving pursuit in the midst of righteous anger to produce a loving invitation. All right? So let's go. The first passage we're going to look at is verse 16. Here's here's the reaction of Paul when he walks into Athens. Now, while Paul was waiting for them, that's Silas and Timothy, while he was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw the city was full of idols. Okay? So Athens is filled with massive, beautiful buildings. It's filled with scholars and theologians and philosophers and mathematicians. And and all of these unbelievable things, art and beauty, are are just abound in Athens. But Paul doesn't see those things. He doesn't notice those things. Or at least least that's not what we're told, right? What what we're told is that Paul is, is moved to this place of he's provoked Within him, his spirit, his soul is provoked by something else that he sees. Idols. You see, Athens is a place where there's a God for everything. Literally. There there is a God for every little thing. You name it, there was a God for it. And so when Paul walks around, he sees idols, these, 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 these statues made of gold and silver and stone. Everywhere he looks, he sees these, these idols that represent these different gods to all sorts of different things. And it causes Paul's soul to begin to stir within him. There, there are multiple temples to multiple different gods in the city of Athens. So as he walks through the city, he's just like, Oh, this is not okay. He walks through the city of power. He walks through the city of intellect. He walks through the city of knowledge. And all he sees is brokenness. Brokenness. And it affects him. It affects him greatly. That that word provoked in in the Greek, it's this weird language of, of one's stomach becoming hot. Like it just, he's just like, he's almost revolted. By this thing, it, it's like, it just stirs his stomach. He's like, this, this is too much for me to handle. It's too much for me to handle. Now, this is not Paul's first encounter with idolatry. It's not his first encounter of, of people worshiping things other than God. 
But this is just over the top. And this, and this Jewish man, Paul, it's just more than he can handle. You see, for the Jew, every little Jewish boy and every little Jewish girl, from the moment they can begin to process, their parents begin to teach them a prayer. It is the most important prayer in, in, all, in all of Israel, in all of, of the Hebrew culture. There's a prayer called the Shema, the Shema. Right? And so they pray it twice a day from the moment they're little, little kids to, to the day that they die. They pray this prayer twice a day. When the sun comes up and they get out of bed, they pray the Shema. And before they go to bed in the evening, they pray the Shema. Shema Israel. Adonai Elohino. Adonai Ahad. You guys want to say that? It's really fun to say. You guys want to say it with me? Here, here say this. Shema Israel. Adonai Elohino. Adonai Ahad. I didn't know you were into that. Um, <laughs> just kidding. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Every day, twice a day, they wake up and they pray that prayer. They go to bed, they pray that prayer. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You see, it was meant to teach little kids and to ingrain in a people this one central, crucial idea that there is one singular God that rules all things. That one singular God is Lord. He is king. He is ruler. There is nothing ever. There never has been nor will there ever be anything greater than him. There is one singular God and he is greater than all things. This is crucial for Israel. right? You see, when you look back at the Old Testament, there's one thing that brings about the wrath of God on his own people more than anything else. Like way more than anything else. You guys know what it is? Idolatry. Idolatry. Again and again and again and again. When we see God get frustrated with Israel, when he's just like, Right? It's idolatry. They begin to look at other nations and other countries that are around them, these other tribes and nations around them, and they say, look at their gods. Those are cool. Let's, let's bring some of those in. And God's just like, like loses his mind on his own people uh, every single time. And so, and so in, order to, in order to protect Israel from the full wrath of God, they instill this prayer into their kids. And they say, men, listen. Right? Because you know as parents— you could just say, you could just say, hey, don't worship other gods. Don't worship other false idols. But that's ain't going to work. Right? Parents in the room, you know that's not going to work. The more you say to your kid, hey, don't do that, don't do that, don't do that, the more they do that. It doesn't work that way. So the better way is to instill what is true into them. Hero Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. We instill what is true from an early age to keep us safe, to keep them from wandering away, to keep them from breaking the very first commandment. You see, this, this, is, so, this is so critical, this is so important, that when Paul, Paul has prayed this prayer since he was a little boy, and he walks in and he sees all this, he says, this, this is not okay. Like, this is not right. Now, in our day, in our culture, in our context, there are uh, many forms of idolatry, right? It, idolatry is, is simply the worshiping of anything other than God. We worship our careers, our finances, our culture, our politics. We're constantly worshiping things. We confess that earlier in our gathering. We confess that idea. But it's specifically here in Utah, there's actually this idea that's been f being formed in Utah, and it's kind of being spread. Um, 
by, by so-called historians, okay? Here in Utah, uh, there is an idea that's being, that's being taught that in ancient Israel, in ancient Israel, okay, uh, that it was widely known and accepted by the Israelites that there were multiple gods. Like, that's being taught here in Utah. That, that in ancient Israel, even though they were only allowed to worship one singular God, only one God was worthy of their worship, that they were, that they were being, that it was widely known and accepted that there were multiple gods, that the Israelites were, uh, were pluralistic in their view of God, but yet they were only worshipped one. And they even point, these, these so-called scholars point to things like the Shema, and they say, look, the fact that you need to clarify, right? Hear, O Israel, the Lord, our God, he's one, right? The fact that you have to clarify that suggests that there are more than one gods. But our God, we only worship one, right? They, they point to even the first commandment, you shall have no other God's, plural, before me. See, clearly they believe that there are more than one God. Or Psalm 136, right, will give thanks to the God of God's, plural. Clearly they believe that there was more than one God. You see, the problem with this idea, though, that's being taught, that's coming out of Utah, is the rest of the Bible. Like, if you read the rest of the Old Testament, you see the wrath of God on full display every single time the people of Israel begin to believe that maybe there's more than one God. You see the culture of the day, all these other nations, all of these other tribes, all these other people who believed in multiple gods. And so, yes, in Israel, it was widely understood and known that there were multiple false gods. It was widely understood and known that there were multiple other nations that believed in different gods than theirs, but that those gods were not real and those gods were not genuine and those gods were not true. That was widely understood. And so the people were taught and they said things like, we, you will not have any other gods, meaning false gods before me. The, very, the second commandment goes on to explain this. That you, you're not going to form any idols or fashion anything out of wood or stone or silver. You know, to worship. Do not worship anything other than me. Right? If there are multiple gods, all equal, uh, all equal in power, all equal in authority, all equal in, in, in every way, it just doesn't make any sense. No scholar in the world, no expert in ancient Israelite culture would ever agree with that. Like they just wouldn't. They would laugh at it. In fact, I'll, I'll tell you what. If you find one, if you find a scholar, uh, an expert in ancient Israelite culture that says, oh yeah, they totally believe in multiple gods, I'll give you 20 bucks. Give me 20 bucks. If you, find, if you find a Jew that says, oh yeah, ancient Israel, they believed in multiple gods, for sure. It was widely known and accepted. I'll give you 20 bucks. I'll give you 50. It's just, it's just, it doesn't exist, okay? It's, it's not real. And so when Paul walks into the city, he sees all of these false gods, and, it, and it's, it is, he's provoked within him. This kind of disgust sits in, and he's like, this, this is not okay, because Paul is Jewish. He's been taught since he's a little boy. That this is not okay. Friends, let me ask you this. When you walk through your city, whether it's in your place of work with your coworkers, in your neighborhood with your friends, or maybe even in your family, does the sin of the people in your life provoke the spirit within you? Does the sin of the people in your life provoke the spirit within you? 
Is there something in you that says, this, this is not okay, I can't stomach this, this is not right? Has the gospel so been so ingrained in you as a follower of Jesus that he is far worthy and far more treasured and far more valuable than all things? There's nothing like him. He is so sweet and good and worthy of all glory and honor and praise that when you see praise being ascribed to something other than him, does it provoke you? Does it, does it frustrate you? Is there a righteous anger, a good anger that kind of wells up within you? That says, that's, that's not okay. Or, or have you become numb to it all? I think a lot of Christians in our culture, in our day right now, we've just kind of become numb to this idea that, that you know, that people are different than me. You're going to believe your thing, I'm going to believe my thing. As long as you don't mess with what I believe, I'm not going to mess with you, what you believe, and we're just going to kind of coexist and just not, not, not pay any attention to each other. We'll just ignore each other. We've become numb to the Spirit provoking us, the Spirit in us stirring our stomachs and saying, that's not okay. It's not okay. We need the Spirit of God to stir our, to stir our stomachs, to, to give us this kind of holy discontent we look at the faith of our neighbors and the faith of our coworkers and said, that, that's not okay. We must do something about it. So what do we do? Well, what does Paul do? Verse 17. So he reasoned. He reasoned in the synagogues with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Paul leans in. He's frustrated, he's provoked, he's disgusted, but he leans in. He reasons with them. Not just where he's comfortable, right? He goes to the synagogue, he says, okay, these are my boys, okay? I know these guys, I speak their language, I'm going to go speak to the Jews, the devout men. But he also goes to the marketplace. He goes to the kind of the central market of Athens where all of these Greek Stoics and philosophers are, are, are going about doing business and he begins to preach and to tell them about Jesus. Anybody who will give him the time of day, he is proclaiming to them the gospel of Jesus. I said at the beginning, a loving pursuit, a loving pursuit in the midst of a righteous anger produces this fruitful invitation, right? Righteous anger produces a loving pursuit every single time. Righteous anger produces a loving pursuit. Unrighteous anger produces something quite different. We'll get to that in a second. But righteous anger produces a loving pursuit every single time, again and again and again and again and again. Read your Bible, right? From the very beginning, right, when Adam and Eve eat the fruit in the garden, there is a righteous anger of God. What have you done, he says. And in, in chapter 3, he dishes out the curse. Cursed is, is all of creation now because of you. Cursed is the plan because of you. But by the end of the chapter, God is killing his own sweet, wonderful, good creation in order to make clothes for those who have destroyed it all. Maybe the most kind of famous uh, outpouring of God's wrath and anger is Sodom and Gomorrah, right? God just goes crazy on them um, and just, just, just wipes out the entire city, just pours out his wrath and burns it to the ground. Two chapters later, Isaac's born. God says, I'm not giving up on you. I'm not giving up on you. This righteous anger produces a loving pursuit. 
This is the essence of the gospel. That even though, even though God has, has been angry with us because of our sin, because of our failure before him, because of our wickedness, because of our idolatry, because of your idolatry, that when he sends his own son at a time, when God puts on flesh and dwells among us, he's angry with us. There is a righteous anger with the people that Jesus is engaging with all of the time. But that righteous anger is producing a loving pursuit. There's a righteous anger for those who have failed before God to be like him, to worship him, to love him. But yet at the same time, that righteous anger is producing a loving pursuit. So loving and so good and so kind that God so loved the world in the midst of his righteous anger towards us that he puts on flesh. He himself becomes a man, Jesus. He lives among us and loves us, loves us all the way to death on the cross where he absorbs his own wrath. The wrath of God that has been kindled towards you and towards me was poured out on Christ, poured out on the God of all things so that we might be clothed and wrapped in his righteousness because he loves us. He loves us in the midst of his anger towards us. And that anger was absorbed. That anger was quenched in the person of Christ. Righteous anger produces a loving pursuit. This is the essence of the gospel. But now let me ask you this. Is your anger, this kind of provoking of your spirit towards your neighbors, your coworkers, your friends, your family members, whoever, is it producing a loving pursuit? Is it righteous anger? Or is it unrighteous anger? Is it producing a loving pursuit? Or is it producing sinfulness in you? You see, and here's the thing too, I'm not talking about normal neighborly frustrations. Everybody, how many of you in the room have ever been frustrated by a neighbor? Okay, all of you, yeah. Normal neighborly frustrations. When I lived in Chicago, um, that's where I lived before I moved to Utah, I lived in Chicago, um, and everybody has neighbors that live very, 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 very close to them, right? Everybody shares a wall, right? Because in Chicago, everybody lives in an apartment, and even if you have a lot of money, you still live in a condo. Like, you need to be making, like, just boatloads of money to buy a house in the city, right? Nobody has a house in the city. It's just so rare. Everybody shares a wall, and so you hear all kinds of weird things, and everybody complains about those things that they hear, okay? Uh, Everybody complains about their neighbors in Chicago. Our first neighbor downstairs, uh, we nicknamed him Samurai. That that was just his name, Uh, and we always referred to him as Samurai. Oh, what's Samurai doing? Oh, I don't know. Um, And the reason why we called him that is because early on, we would hear these sounds, these crazy, like, yelling, grunting noises, and we always complained about it because it was, like, Saturday morning at, like, 6 a.m., this dude's, like, grunting downstairs. Like, what is happening? He's like, yeah, yeah, like, what is going on down there? This is jacked up, man. And he's like alone, and we're like, what is happening? And we always complain about it because it's super early. Until one day, I'm walking in, and his like door's ajar, and I look in, and he's got samurai swords hanging up on the wall. The dude's a ninja. And on Saturday mornings, he's like practicing his ninja moves. He's like practicing his like samurai sword mastery. And from that moment on, we never complained about it because we have a ninja downstairs, and if anybody breaks in, we're good, okay? Like nobody breaks into a place where a guy has samurai swords. You just don't, that's just foolish, foolish, okay? Uh, we had other friends who, their upstairs neighbor was named Bowling Ball uh, because literally you used to be sitting there having dinner and it was like, you're like, what in the world? Like, yeah, it just happens all the time. You're like, wait, what? 
What is it? We don't know. It just happens all the time. How do you not know? How have you not, like, investigated this? This is amazing. They didn't know. They just nicknamed a bowling ball, right? Everybody's got neighbor problems, all right? Like, maybe your neighbor spilled fertilizer on your yard, or maybe they play music too loud, or maybe they parked in your, blocked your driveway. Everybody's got neighbor issues. That's not what I'm talking about here, okay? We're talking about something different. When I came to Utah, I experienced a different type of neighbor problem. I've never experienced before. And, and last week in my sermon, for those of you here, Utah kind of got a bad rap. Um, and I, I do love Utah. And so I want to pick on the rest of us for a minute, if I can. You see, the, ex- the problem that I experienced when I came here uh, from followers of Jesus, from Christians he- here, was a different type of neighbor problem. I experienced people who were frustrated with their neighbors because of what their neighbors believe. Never experienced that in Chicago. All kinds of weird neighbor things I experienced. I could tell you some even crazier stories than the ones I've told you, but I never experienced anybody who was frustrated with their neighbor because of what their neighbor believes. When I first came here, I was caught off guard by this. I found people grumpy. I found pastors. I met pastors when I first got here that were grumpy about what people here believe. It's like, why are you grumpy about it? And not grumpy in a good way. Not, not righteous anger. No, 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 this was different. This was producing something different. This was not producing a loving pursuit. This was producing mocking, producing bitterness, producing just kind of poking fun at little things that they believe, producing this kind of sense of superiority, because how could anybody believe something so foolish? I've seen this in friends. People who I know love Jesus, love, love Jesus very, very much. And they know that they're called to love their neighbors as they love themselves. Yet there's something that happens in this culture that we live in. There's something that happens among us that's producing in us an unrighteous anger that is resulting in sinfulness resulting in a bitterness. It's resulting in sinful actions that are driving us farther and farther and farther away from our neighbors. One of the most profound quotes that I've read since I lived, moved to Utah, the thing that's kind of just wrecked me since when I, when I moved here, was a quote by Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Uh, Bonhoeffer said this, he says, the man who despises another will never make anything of him. Nothing that he despises in that man is entirely absent from himself. Bonhoeffer says, man, listen, if, if, there's any, if there's any hope of you ever making anything or changing anything about that person, you can't despise them. And the reality is, is that if you despise them, the thing that you find in them, it's also in you. Like, what do you think that they think of you? What, what do you think that they see in you? Friends, if there is any hope for the gospel in the lives of your neighbors, if there's any hope for the gospel in the lives of your coworkers, if there's any hope for the gospel in the lives of your family members and your friends that believe something different than you, we cannot allow their sin to produce sin in us. And it's happening far too often, if we're honest with ourselves happening far too often. We cannot allow their sin to produce sin in us. That's unrighteous anger. I want you to remember this. 
when we see sin in the faith of others, in the beliefs, in the religion of others, we must work by the power of the Spirit to find a righteous anger that produces a loving pursuit. If not, if not, we will find an unrighteous anger that produces hateful spite. We see this all over our culture. We see it all over the world. We see it in a unique way right here in Utah. If we allow the sin of others to produce sin in us, not only are we no better, but we have no hope of ever making a difference. Friends, your children are watching. Your neighbors are watching. And your God is watching. And when he saw your sinfulness, he lovingly pursued you. What will you do with the sinfulness that you see in your neighbors? Now, I said at the beginning of this that God uses a loving pursuit in the midst of a righteous anger to produce a fruitful invitation. Here's the pursuit, the loving pursuit in the fruitful invitation. Verse 18. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him, with Paul, and some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be preaching of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. All right, so the first thing we see is these Stoics, these Epicureans, right? So in Athens in this day, there's these two massive schools of thought and they're constantly at odds with each other on everything, on everything, every little philosophical thing. They just debate it all. They're always debating. They're always jabbing with questions, trying to pull out and kind of see if, if, anybody, if they can defend what they believe about all things, especially even religion, right? They have two very different views of God um, and this, this, the Stoics believe kind of like in this, in this kind of force uh, that was like, I don't know, like not like really a God, but there was something that kind of holds all things together, like Luke Skywalker. Um, and then the Epicureans believe that, okay, maybe there's a God, maybe there's not. There's no real way to know. There's no real way to tell. No one really knows. Um, so let's eat, drink, and be merry, for one day we will die. And that's it, okay? Um, so they, those, these are kind of the views of the, of the time in, in Athens. And um, they hear Paul, and the first thing they say is, man, what is, this, what is this babbler trying to say? Now that word, babbler, um, is really actually pretty fascinating. Uh, in, the, in the Greek, um, it's, hard, it's a hard word to translate. Um, in, in the Greek, it's spermologos, which um, literally translates as one who picks up seeds. How do you translate that in English? I don't know. So I, I give credit to the, uh, the, the scholars who have translated our modern English Bibles. But it's just, it's weird. What do you do with that, right? One who picks up seeds. What does this mean? What does it mean? Like, one who picks up seeds. It was a saying of the day. It was a saying of the day. R- really, in, in some ways, it's an insult, right? Listen, what is this guy just, who's just picking up all these little seeds? What is he actually trying to say? Where is the real substance, right? What, what they're saying is this. All you are is one who picks up a little idea here, a little idea here. You steal this idea from this religion. You steal this idea from this philosopher. You steal this idea from that mathematician. You steal this idea from this astronomer. And that's really all you are. There's no real new in what you're saying. It's just old little bits and pieces. You are one who picks up seeds. Now, Paul's reaction to this is different than what I believe my reaction would be. 
what I believe that your reaction would be, right? The reality is, is when somebody begins to kind of poke at our faith, and in our culture in our day, you know exactly what I'm talking about. When somebody says, listen, you, you, just, you just have little seeds. Isn't that cute? Isn't that cute? You, you have little seeds. You have, you have your Bible. You have your, your gospel. You have Jesus. But the real substance is over here. Like you need these things in order to actually have the fullness, in order to have the full substance. You need all of this, right? What you need is, are these things. And maybe that's, maybe that's religious things. Maybe it's cultural things. Maybe it's science. Maybe it's technology. Right? You, you're missing out because all you have, you're just picking up on old ancient seeds. It's cute, but it's not really the substance of what is real. And our tendency in that moment is just to be like, yeah, fine, I'm done. But it's a loving pursuit. It's a loving pursuit. A patient endurance that is going to produce a fruitful invitation. Paul leans in. He continues to proclaim the gospel. He continues to tell them about Jesus. He does not take his ball and go home. He leans in. And friends, I'm telling you right now, listen, if, you, if God has brought you to Utah and he's called you here, listen, it's going to take time. It's not going to be easy. You're going to say things and people are going to make fun of the things that you say about Jesus. They're going to dismiss them. They're going to say, those are just little seeds. The real substance is this. If you take your ball and go home, it's over. You've failed. The gospel calls us to lean in in the midst of our suffering. The gospel calls us to endure in the midst of trials. We lean in. And so here's what I want you to remember. We must patiently endure. Things are not going to change overnight. Your words are not going to gain you acceptance. Only your loving pursuit will open this door. And the door will open, if it opens at all, one small door at a time. So walk through the first, and then the second, and so on and so on, as long as you can, attending the gatherings of your neighbors, the baptisms, the neighborhood functions, the parties, the birthdays, the dinners, all of the little things that you don't actually want to go to, but they invite you to. So just, just do it, okay? God will use the loving pursuit and faithful endurance to produce a greater invitation. Friends, you will be invited to things that you don't want to go to. I promise you. If you haven't already, you will. It's coming. Just go. Show up. Loving pursuit again and again and again and again, when the things that you believe are dismissed, continue to walk, continue to pursue, continue to love, because one day, one day the invitation will come. The question will be asked. So tell me more about what you believe. Tell me more about your church. What brought you to Utah in the first place? The question will be asked. And in that moment, will you be ready to respond? You see, Paul goes to a place where he's uncomfortable. He's invited to the Oropagus. The Oropagus was a temple to a foreign god. So the thing that's disgusting Paul, the thing that's making him angry and provoking him, he's invited into. Hey, why don't you come to the Oropagus and tell us more about your god? Paul's just like, I don't want to go there. I don't want to go to the temple of a foreign god. Like for Paul, like this is a disgrace to walk into this place. It was built for the, for the god of war, the Greek god of war, Ares, 
right? Now, the Romans come in, the Romans rule the known world, and the Roman god of war, war is Mares, which is where we get the term Mars Hill. It was built on a, on a small little, little mound there in Athens. This Mars Hill, this, this, this Oropagus, this temple to this foreign god, is where Paul's invited to address the men and women of Athens. Paul could have said, man, you've made fun of me, you've belittled me, and now you're inviting me to this disgusting place that I don't want to go. It goes against everything that I believe. But he didn't do that. But I'll show up, I'll attend, and I'll tell you about my God. And he's given this opportunity to speak, and he speaks of the substance, not the seeds. The sermon that Paul preaches, or the talk that he gives, there's no time for it. We're out of time. It deserves its own sermon for another day, but I want to read it for you this morning briefly. Starting in verse 22. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I pass along and observe the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with the inscription to an unknown God. They have a God for everything, even to the things that are unknown. It's like, there's got to be more than what we see. So let's build one for the unknown God. What you therefore worship is unknown. This I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands, as though he needed anything, since he himself gives all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all of the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and boundaries of their dwelling, that they should seek God in the hope that they might feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. Times of ignorance God overlooked. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world and its righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And, at the, and, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him, that man, he raised him from the dead. Here's what Paul says. He's given this opportunity to speak and he speaks of the substance he says, this is not seeds, this is not little ideas, this is not little things that I've picked up along the way. The substance is the God of all things who made heaven and earth and rules everything in it. The substance is singular, one singular God. There are not plural gods, there's not multiple gods, there's not a pantheon of gods. There's one singular God. The substance is singular. The substance is not contained by the buildings of men. No one has ever built him a house. No one has ever built him a home that he, that he lives in. No, it's silly. It's a silly idea. Substance cannot be served by men. No one's ever done anything for him. He has no need. He has no 
need. He doesn't need anything from us. The true substance, the God of all things, he cannot be replaced or replicated by lesser things, silver or gold or stone. The true substance, the God of all things, has formed all things and controls all things. Every single person who has ever lived, he has put them exactly where he has them for his own purpose, for his own glory. The true substance gives life to all, and in him we live and move and have our being. Our substance, our very substance comes from him. And he, the God of all things, is coming back to judge those who have chosen to worship seeds, lesser things, seeds of knowledge, of wealth, false gods and technology and culture and power and religion. He's going to judge them by one man, by one person. That person is Jesus. He will stack up everything next to Jesus and say, is it as good? Is it as powerful? Is it as valuable? Is it, is, it, is it worth as much as he is? Is it as pure as he is? And if not, it'll all be burnt away. And friends, I'm here to tell you, nothing measures up to Christ. There is no one and nothing in the entire world, there never has been never in the world, there ever be anything that is of, as so valuable. There's nothing so precious. There's nothing so unbelievably good and glorious as the person of Christ. And so the only way we stack up to him is to be transformed by him into his likeness. We need Christ. We need, his, we need the cross of Christ to cover us in his own righteousness, to be transformed into his likeness so that we might endure that day of judgment that is coming. This is what Paul says to those who have gathered that day. In a temple built to a foreign god, in a city that worships all sorts of foreign things, Paul says, I will lovingly pursue you because a day is coming, a day is coming when your time will be up. Same is true for your neighbors, your friends and your coworkers, those whom some of us have belittled and mocked and scorned and said humiliating things about. Their time is running out. May a righteous anger produce in you a loving pursuit for them, that they might know the true substance and wrap their lives around Christ. Let me pray for us. Jesus, we come before you this morning. We stand in your presence. We open your word. My prayer is that you would use it to change our hearts. For those of us who have had hearts that have been hardened by our, the culture in which we live, for those of us who have had heart, hearts that have been hardened uh, by the thoughts or the beliefs of our neighbors, that you would soften us. You'd soften us. That you'd create within us a patient endurance and a love, a love that lasts, a love that outlasts, a love that outlasts the, the, the hardship, a love that outlasts the persecution, the, the love that outlasts the questioning or the doubt. A love that endures. A love that presses in. And a love that might transform others. That as they look at us, that they would see you. That they would see Christ in us. And they would give their lives to you. That they might know the substance. And reject the seeds. I pray these things in your sweet name, in the name of Jesus. 
Amen.